0: It's your host, Shannon Ballard. Southern Mysteries is an independent podcast researched, written, hosted, and produced by me. It takes a lot of time and resources to create this show. And like most indie podcasters, this is a side gig for me. I have a full time job in addition to the podcast. I make it work because I'm passionate about sharing these stories with you, and I've been able to keep the show going thanks to amazing patrons who support the show on Patreon. Thanks to my newest patrons who are making this episode possible, Charles from Ann Arbor, Michigan, Christy Via from Wichita Falls, Texas, Jana Atkins from Cumming, California, Courtney Sweet from Rochester, New Hampshire, and Parker Jackson, Angie... Dana Masburn, Mercedes DeCastro, Melissa Honeycutt-Ellison, and Cecilia Wilkins, who are all listening and supporting Southern Mysteries from mysterious locations. When you join them in supporting the show on Patreon, you can access the patron-exclusive podcast, Audacious Tales of American Crime, along with previously released patron-exclusive podcast, Plus, you can hear the archive of the first three seasons of Southern Mysteries, which you can't hear anywhere else. Different tiers of support get you access to different episodes, so you can check it out for yourself if you like the show and want to hear more stories like the one you'll hear today. It's easy to opt in and out, so try it out at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. Once you join in, you'll get immediate access to start catching up on the stories you've missed so far. Betty Gale Brown was a sophomore at Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky. On October 26, 1961, Betty Gale studied with friends in a dorm on campus. She left the dorm around midnight, saying she was headed home. Just after 3 a.m., Her body was discovered inside her car parked on campus. Six decades later, the police file notes the case was closed with an arrest, but that arrest only complicated the story and added to the mystery of her murder. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of who killed Betty Gail Brown. Betty Gail Brown was born in Richmond, Kentucky on May 4, 1942. She was the only child to her insurance salesman father, Hargis Brown, and mother, Quincy Stanton Brown. Quincy, the sister of well-known character actor, Harry Dean Stanton, was a part-time decorator. The Browns lived on the other side of town from Transylvania University. The private university founded in 1780 is the oldest in the state of Kentucky. Betty Gill was very close with her parents, especially her mother, which is why she chose to live at home and commute to university each day in her blue 1950 SIMCA. Her commute took about 15 minutes. Betty Gale was a very likable and attractive 19-year-old French major who was popular on campus. The sophomore was dedicated to her studies and liked to date, but wasn't romantically linked to anyone at the time of her death. The news of Betty Gale Brown's murder devastated friends and fellow students who said they could think of no one who considered Betty Gale an enemy or had any negative interactions with her. On October 26, 1961, Betty Gale told her parents she planned to head to campus to study with friends at Four Hall Dorm. She had an important biology exam the next day and wanted to get in extra study time with classmates. She arrived at the dorm around 7 p.m. and planned to study until 11 But as the night went on, she realized she needed a little extra study time. She spoke with a dorm house mother, who gave her permission to stay until the dorm closed at midnight. The house mother and three friends escorted Betty Gale out of the dorm just before midnight. Betty Gale crossed the road, walked towards her car parked in the driveway across from Forer Hall. A male student who knew Betty Gale and was taking a date home saw her, and pulled his car alongside hers. They chatted for a few minutes before they said goodnight, and he turned in to park. He saw Betty Gale drive along Upper Street, which was the route that should have taken her home. Their brief encounter was around 12.05 a.m. That student was the last person known to have seen Betty Gale alive, apart from the person who killed her. She would be dead, within an hour of that parking lot encounter. Betty Gale told her mother, Quincy, she would be home around 11 p.m. Her father, Hargis, turned in for the night around 10, and Quincy told him she would wait up for Betty Gale. It was a cold night, so Quincy put a heating pad in her daughter's bed to warm it up and laid down on the bed to relax and read a magazine. While she waited for her daughter. Just after midnight, Quincy, who knew Forer Hall closed to the public at midnight, began to worry because Betty Gale had not come home. Quincy decided to grab a coat and drive the route Betty Gale drove to and from campus just in case she had car trouble that had delayed her return home. But there was no sign of Betty Gale or her car. Around 2 a.m., Quincy returned home, woke up her husband Hargis, and let him know something was wrong. They called the police to ask if a Simca had been involved in an accident and were relieved when the officer said no. The Browns then called the house mother at Forer Hall, who said Betty Gale should have been home a long time ago because she left around midnight. Quincy Brown's worry about Betty Gale turned to fear. Hargis Brown called the police to report Betty Gale missing, then got into his car and drove to a few local spots Betty would frequent with friends, a few restaurants around the area. When Hargis returns without Betty Gale, Quincy took the car to drive around campus to look for any sign of Betty Gale or her car. When Quincy neared Forer Hall, she heard a police siren and noticed the dorm mother and several students gathered outside, talking to police. Quincy approached the officer and asked what was going on. The officer had to break the news to Quincy Brown. Just 10 minutes earlier, around 3 a.m., Betty Gale's car had been located, parked in a traffic circle just in front of Morrison Hall, a few blocks away. Quincy felt a glimmer of hope until she processed the words that came next. Betty Gale was in the car, but she was not alive. She had been murdered. The officer arranged for someone to drive Quincy home, where she had to break the news to her husband that their only child was dead. Betty Gale's body had been found in her car around 3.05 a.m., by Lexington police officer Don Duckworth. He was checking campus locations after he heard the all unit broadcast about the missing co-ed. The police report stated, Officer Duckworth noticed the victim seated under the driver's seat, head back, and she appeared to be dead. He immediately took the necessary measures to protect the scene and radioed for assistance. Duckworth told investigators He did not touch the car until his backup arrived. Betty Gale had been strangled to death with her own bra. It appeared the strangler had been in the back seats of the co-ed's car. The autopsy report stated Betty Gale had a head wound, which was believed to have been caused by her attacker forcing her head into the dashboard, where some blood had been found that matched Betty Gale's there were also several cuts and scratches around the left side of her neck and chin, likely from Betty Gale trying to fight back. The coroner estimated the time of death around 1 a.m., October 27, 1961. Betty Gale was wearing the clothes she had on when she left her parents' house. Bermuda shorts, a white blouse, sweater, and a beige raincoat. The top two buttons of her blouse were unbuttoned, with the blouse tucked into her shorts. Her bra was around her neck. Because Betty Gale's bra was used to strangle her, investigators initially theorized this was a sexually motivated attack. At autopsy, the coroner found Betty Gale was menstruating at the time of her murder, and there was no sign of sexual activity or an assault. Investigators kept coming back to the question of Betty Gale's bra. Was there any reason she would have taken it off? Or did her attacker unbutton her shirt, remove her bra, then button her shirt again? One of Betty Gale's friends unknowingly provided a reason as to why the killer may have had easy access to Betty Gale's bra. When police interviewed this friend, who had been part of Betty Gill's study group the night she died, they asked if there was any reason Betty Gill would have taken off her bra. The young woman immediately asked if Betty Gill was on her period. She explained Betty Gill would remove her bra whenever she could when she was menstruating due to the discomfort and irritation she felt in her breast. Investigators had a possible explanation Betty Gill may have removed the bra once she finished with her study group and was back in her car. If that was the case, was it possible that it was on the seat of the car, easily accessible, to her killer? Who was this killer? And what was their motive? Betty Gill's handbag and books were still in the car, her car keys were in the floorboard of the back seat, and nothing was taken, which ruled out burglary gone wrong as motive. The doors to Betty Simca were locked, except the front passenger door, which was known to have a malfunctioning lock. Investigators found three clear fingerprints left on the car, along with several smudged and partial prints. Two of the clear fingerprints belonged to Betty's parents, and the third belonged to a local mechanic who worked on the car and came to the police station for an interview. He was quickly ruled out as a suspect. When investigators learned Betty Gale was very careful about locking her car doors and never offered strangers a ride, they theorized Betty Gale knew or was acquainted with her killer. She was murdered on campus, which meant her killer may have been connected to Transylvania University. Hours after the discovery of Betty Gale's body, a waitress from a local diner contacted police to let them know she served Betty Gale at the diner, the night she was killed, and Betty Gale was with a woman the waitress had never seen before. Authorities believed there was a chance this mystery woman would make an appearance at Betty Gale's funeral, so they took the waitress to the funeral, but she said she did not see the mystery woman there. Their efforts to identify the woman were complicated by contradictory reports from fellow students Several who had been at the diner around the time the waitress claimed to have seen Betty Gale and this mystery woman said Betty Gale was not there. Police moved to their next line of questioning, Betty Gale's romantic interest. Betty Gale kept a detailed diary about her life, her crushes, and the boys she dated, especially the boys she met since she started college, Her mother read the diary so she could make a list of the young men that Betty Gale had mentioned. She handed it over to investigators who interviewed all of these young men, and the young men fully cooperated with the investigation. They took polygraph tests, and all of them passed. None of their fingerprints matched the mysterious smudge or the partial prints on Betty's car. In an effort to try to match those prints to a suspect... Police requested permission to interview and fingerprint all students who lived on campus at Transylvania University. Permission was granted, and they started with the 223 students in male dorms. More than 200 of them cooperated, but police ended the fingerprinting when university faculty complained of the disruption to student life and the confusion it was causing on campus. Not a single lead came from the on-campus interviews and fingerprinting. Detective Chief Raleigh Lynch and his 19-member detective unit were at a loss as to what Betty Gale was doing and who she was with in the final hour of her life. Who had she encountered between the time her friend saw her driving down Upper Street towards home and the discovery of her body on campus just a few hours later. Local newspapers followed every step of the investigation and reported every detail about the murder. They even printed photos of Betty's body in the car where she was discovered. The publication of every detail of the murder led to frustration from the public who demanded an arrest and answers It also frustrated police as they wanted some of the details to remain private, details only her killer would know. The community's fear about a killer being on the loose and demands for a swift arrest led to damaging accusations and rumors about possible suspects, including Betty Gale's mother, Quincy, who was accused of murdering her own daughter. Police received many calls from concerned members of the public who said they really believed Quincy Brown was a killer who should be investigated. There was no evidence that backed up that damaging claim that was hurtful to Quincy and Hargis Brown. They decided to end the speculation and they voluntarily took lie detector tests, which they both passed. They released the results to the public. And again, asked anyone who knew anything about who killed their daughter to call the police. For more than a year, well into 1962, Lexington detectives tried to answer the question of who killed Betty Gale Brown. Their investigation led them to a former student in Chicago who had left Transylvania University the day after Betty Gale's murder. He had a rock solid alibi and was cleared of any suspicion. Investigators also pursued a lead to New York City where they questioned a suspect who had been detained when police found him in a park in possession of a large file of newspaper clippings about the girl's death and investigation. When he was interviewed, he explained the clippings had been sent to him by a friend who was still on campus and following the investigation. Lexington police ruled out the former and current student, and determined they were not suspects, which left investigators back where they started, with no leads and no suspect. The case turned cold until January 16, 1965, the day 33-year-old Alex Arnold Jr. was arrested in Klamath Falls, Oregon, for drunk and disorderly conduct. From behind bars, he asked to speak to a detective, saying he had a confession to make. When a detective agreed to talk to him, Arnold asked that they move to another cell because the one he currently occupied was being secretly monitored. When questioned, Alex Arnold claimed he murdered a woman in Kentucky. Her name was Betty Gale Brown. When police looked into Arnold's background, They found he was born and raised in Lexington. He had struggled with alcoholism and been jailed several times because of it. At the time of Betty Gale's murder, he was living in Lexington, just one block from Transylvania University. The drifter left Kentucky not long after Betty Gale's murder and eventually landed in Klamath Falls. Lexington police traveled to Oregon to interview Arnold, who signed a detailed confession which he later admitted he did not read. According to the confession, Arnold explained, it all felt like a dream. He claimed the night he killed Betty Gale, he had been drinking at his favorite bar for hours. He left to find a place to sleep it off. He went to a park where there were too many students hanging around, so he walked onto Transylvania's campus. As he walked in front of Old Morrison Hall, he saw a car and inside two women who were making out. He walked over to ask them for a match to light a cigarette. Arnold claimed the women immediately started cursing at him and told him to go away. He initially walked on, but explained he struggled with fits of rage when he was drunk. In that state, he turned back, walked up to Betty Gale's car, and opened the door, he started punching at both of the women inside. As he forced Betty Gale's head against the dashboard, the other woman ran away. Arnold said he jerked Betty Gale back against the seat by her hair and shoulder, and realized she was unconscious. He panicked and moved to the back seat of the car, where he picked up a bra that was in the front seat. Arnold used the bra to strangle Betty Gale by putting his hands on each end of the bra and putting his knee against the back of the seat for leverage. He claimed it took a minute, maybe a minute and a half, and Betty Gale just quivered a little bit. Arnold claimed that he put the bra back on the front seat, where he found it, and then noticed Betty Gale's blouse was tucked in but unbuttoned all the way down. He said he thought it would be a good idea to button up the blouse because, quote, I thought if she was found that way with her blouse unbuttoned, they would think I tried to rape her. Arnold wrapped up his confession by saying he calmly wiped his prints off the dashboard, pushed down the locks to three of the car's doors and walked away. He explained he walked to the apartment of a friend and told her he just killed a woman. Arnold's confession had many holes that investigators seemed to overlook and accept. When police reached out to Arnold's friend, May Hedges, she said Arnold never came to her apartment that night, and if he had confessed to killing a woman, she would have turned him in. Arnold's confession contradicted the crime scene, where Betty Gale's bra was found around her neck when her body was discovered, not on the front seat. With Alex Arnold's confession, Betty Gail Brown's murder was once again front-page news across Kentucky, and the pressure was on to close the case and move on. Alex Arnold was arrested and charged with the murder of Betty Gail Brown. Arnold confessed, but his lawyers advised he enter a plea of not guilty. Their defense strategy meant the state had to provide evidence— Arnold murdered Betty Gale. Otherwise, the jury would have to find him, not guilty. Alex Arnold's trial started in Lexington on February 5th, 1965. Arnold made contradictory statements during testimony, such as, I didn't kill her, but I'm not sure of that. He also claimed he was with his aunt at the time of the murder, which she corroborated. His defense explained Alex Arnold had struggled during his service in the Korean War and had been a drunk for over 10 years. When he was questioned by police in Klamath Falls, he was suffering from alcohol withdrawal syndrome, which caused delirium and paranoia, including Arnold's belief that he killed Betty Gail Brown and was being secretly monitored in his jail cell. Arnold testified a few months before Betty Gale's murder He had been arrested for pandering. His cellmate was questioned by police about Betty Gale's murder and told Arnold a lot of details about the crime. Arnold began to have nightmares about killing Betty Gale Brown and eventually convinced himself he had done it. The defense pointed to Arnold's confession that they claimed was concocted by a man who heard details of a crime he didn't commit from a cellmate read detailed accounts of the crime in local newspapers at the time Betty Gale was murdered, and was unstable due to alcoholism. Arnold didn't know all the details of the crime scene, including where the bra was found. Even his claim that he pushed down three of the buttons in the car to lock it before he walked away couldn't have been true. The only way to lock Betty Simka was with the door handles, not buttons. The prosecution was not able to present any evidence at trial that directly or indirectly connected Alex Arnold to the crime. But Alex Arnold's confession stirred up quite a controversy in Lexington. Arnold's claim that he had seen Betty Gale making out with another woman shocked Betty Gale's parents and the community at large. Being gay in the 1960s was considered something to hide and be ashamed of. There's no way to know if that was part of Betty Gale's story. Her detailed diaries from high school up until the time of her death never mentioned interest in another woman, which is what Betty Gale's parents pointed to when they denied Alex Arnold's claim. In fact, they reached out to Arnold's defense and testified in favor of Alex Arnold. They publicly stated they did not believe his story and they did not believe he killed their daughter. Arnold was acquitted due to a hung jury. The judge declared a mistrial, but the indictment against Alex Arnold remained open until it was dismissed in 1973. Decades later, new persons of interest emerged. In the 1970s, Adolf Lautenberg was convicted of killing four women in California. He strangled his victims, and that similarity piqued the interest of authorities in Lexington. In 2012, his prints were compared to the partial from Betty Gale's murder scene. And with no match, he was cleared. In 2010, a cold case task force looked into the possibility Betty Gale Brown could have been the first victim of serial killer Nolan Ray George. In the 1980s, George murdered women in Michigan, Ohio, and Kentucky. He had an affinity for strangling his victims with articles of clothing, usually pantyhose or underwear. The task force ruled out George as a suspect when it was confirmed he had sexually assaulted all of his victims, which made them believe he was not involved in the murder of Betty Gail Brown. Lexington police reports note this case was cleared by arrest due to the confession and trial of Alex Arnold. Quincy and Hargis Brown, who defended Alex Arnold and in turn felt they defended their daughter's reputation, asked police to continue to pursue the case to answer the questions of who killed their daughter and why. Hargis Brown died in 1990, followed by Quincy in 2012. They passed away never knowing who killed their only child. A mystery that has lingered over Lexington for more than six decades. Robert G. Lawson was assigned as Alex Arnold's court-appointed lawyer and served on his defense team at trial. He's been a law professor at the University of Kentucky for more than 50 years. In 2017, in a Vice interview promoting his book, Who Killed Betty Gail Brown?, Lawson was asked if he thought this case will ever be solved. He said he didn't think it would, referring to the murder as the case that's still hidden in the darkness and not likely to change in the years ahead. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. So often with cold cases, there's a hope that evidence from a crime decades ago could be tested and used to solve the crime or at the very least provide new leads. But in the case of Betty Gail Brown, that will never happen. The case evidence has long since been lost or destroyed with little to no explanation as to how or why that happened. If you want to dig deeper into the mystery of Betty Gill's murder, I recommend you read Robert G. Lawson's book, Who Killed Betty Gill Brown? I'll drop a link in the show notes for you, along with all the sources for this episode, at southernmysteries.com. If you're enjoying the show, I'd encourage you to take a moment, rate and review Southern Mysteries where you're listening. Another way you can help support this independent podcast is by becoming a patron of Southern Mysteries on Patreon. That's where you can hear patron-exclusive episodes of the show, the archive of the first three seasons, and our patron-exclusive Audacious podcast tells of scandalous and shocking crimes in American history. You can check it out for yourself, see if this is for you, and start listening to a lot of content you haven't heard here on the main Southern Mysteries feed when you check us out on Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash Mysteries to join today. However you support the show, whether it is supporting me on Patreon or leaving a review so you encourage other people to listen to the show or maybe dropping a link to this show on your social channels, Whatever that looks like for you, just know it is greatly appreciated. As always, thanks for listening.